Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Wednesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. To mark Women's History Month, today's conversations are all centered around topics, well, related to what else? Women. We'll start with Georgia State sociology professor Deidre Oakley. She'll talk about the status of women in Georgia over the last 50 years, the good and the challenging. So that's our first conversation coming up in just a moment. But we'll begin with yesterday's major announcement from Georgia Governor Brian Kemp. As Dr. Toomey and I mentioned multiple times over the last few weeks, we would be moving quickly to expand vaccine criteria provided we continue to see increased supply from the federal government. That's why effective this Thursday, March 25th, all Georgians over the age of 16 will be eligible for the COVID-19 vaccination. Now, Governor Kemp says nearly 75 percent of Georgia's seniors have received at least one vaccine dose. Now, in larger areas like Atlanta, Kemp stated that the demand is high, but that's not throughout the entire state. But we're also seeing, you know, less demand in our rural areas. So we're, we're expanding eligibility to make sure we continue to keep the demand as high as we can. Now, at this time, the State Department of Public Health reports more than 3.2 million vaccine doses have been administered in the state. Still, at the same time, the rate of newly reported cases has remained constant over the past seven days. Even yesterday, more than 1,100 new coronavirus cases are reported in the state. Now, this brings Georgia's total number, total number of cases confirmed since last March to 844,700 and 20 confirmed coronavirus cases. And sadly, 6,187 Georgians have died due to the virus. And the total number of hospitalizations now, 58,600 excuse me, 58,068 Georgians in total have been hospitalized. Meanwhile, following the governor's update, Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms today announced the city will soon lift the ban on large outdoor gatherings. So pay attention to the number. After May 15th, Gatherings of up to 1,999 folks will be permitted. So if you're number 2,000, you're going to make it bad for everybody. So scratch that person off the list. The moratorium on outdoor events with 2,000 people or more still remains in effect. Also, some other good news. The city says they're going to bring back basketball hoops to all the city courts by April 1st. So who's up for a game of three-on-three? Get your squad. I got mine. Send me an email. Email, we'll we'll take it to the hard court. Grace will referee. This is Closer Look. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. The women's movement of the 70s. Now, depending on whom you ask, you'll get a few varied opinions about strategy and messaging because it was different for different women. Still, at the core was a collective goal of fighting and demanding equality. But what was it like here in Georgia? And what's been the status of women over the last five decades here in this southern state? In a 2020 report, How Far Yet to Go, the Status of Georgia, 1970 and Today, we're going to talk with Georgia State University sociology professor Deidre Oakley. Professor Oakley, thanks for taking the time. It's been some while since we spoke. Yeah. Hello, Rose. It's nice to uh, hear you again. All right. Listen, let's begin here because, and I'm not trying to age anybody, but when we think about (laughs) <laughs> Let's go back to 1971. Um, what are some of those major milestones that, that can be highlighted, I guess, under this whole scope of gender equality? What stands out to you? Well, uh, you know, 1971 uh, 
for example, Roe v. Wade had not been passed yet, wouldn't be passed for another two years. Mm -hmm. So women really didn't have um, autonomy over their bodies. And uh, if you don't have autonomy over your body, then that's going to affect everything. Your education, um, uh, economic mobility, what kind of job you can get, childcare, etc. So things were very, very different um, mm -hmm. back then. And I think in the report, which, which was commissioned by the um, Georgia ACLU, mm -hmm. um, th there's a, there's a, a, was an article I found in AJ, uh, the Atlanta Constitution, about a woman's group who got together and how sort of the media and other people thought of these women's groups. Mm -hmm. And the term man-hater mm -hmm. came up in the article. So I just thought that was very, very funny. You wouldn't hear that today. Um, but in terms of progress, uh, one of the highlights uh, that we found was um, Georgia ranks second in the nation in terms of women-owned businesses. And a third of those businesses are owned by women of color. Mm -hmm. Second in the nation. Um, and that, that's just amazing. But at the same time, we've got this terrible pay gap mm -hmm. between men and women, which, which gets worse if you're a woman of color. Um, we have the one of the highest maternal mortality rates mm -hmm. in the country. It puts us on par with Malaysia. Um, so there's a lot of work yet to go, even though a lot of progress has mm -hmm. been made. Let's talk about why the ACLU of Georgia wanted this this report. For did they give you any indication why they wanted this? Well, it, it, this was back. It was when the the abortion ban had been passed, and they had filed a lawsuit with mm -hmm. Sister Song. Mm -hmm. um, and so, what they wanted, basically, from a, a sociological point of view, was just sort of uh, a look at what it looked like for the last or what it looked like for women in 1970 mm -hmm. and what it looks like today, where, where is the progress? Where are the lags? And um, I think originally it was probably going to be part of an amicus brief, mm -hmm. but as we looked into it and found all these sort of paradoxes and everything, they decided that, that this would be a standalone report. Um, and so we had a, uh, it, ended up being on Zoom, a conference about a year ago, actually, mm -hmm. um, to present the report. And um, and so so it basically just became one of their it's it's up on their website mm -hmm. um, and it's part of their women's rights movement. We it's not surprising we expect some of the achievements to be made in some areas. And obviously, when we talk about now about small business owners and obviously we, you could make the argument for the case of perhaps in, in education, although there's still a lot of concerns there. Uh, but I want to focus on when, when you talked about uh, Roe v. Wade and, of course, the whole issue of reproductive justice. Is are we still seeing, and is it fair to say that in certain parts of the country, where if you're talking about the South, where you have the what they call the Bible Belt, that there may be more challenging issues for women still because of some of the ideologies that have been pretty much, I don't say fostered, but have been present in some of these Southern states for for decades now. Is that fair? Is that a fair assessment? Oh yeah, it's fair, and there's always at. at some point or another, there's always laws being passed to restrict abortion. Um, but it's not just about, and Roe v. Wade mm -hmm. was not just about abortion. Mm -hmm. It's about women's rights over their lives, not just their bodies. And so what these types of laws do is, is restrict women in all sorts of different domains. And the one thing I'll say about Georgia, which is highlighted in the report, mm -hmm. Georgia has nothing, nothing else on the law books besides the federal family leave, which is unpaid, in terms of um, supporting families um, when they have a kid. Mm -hmm. um, 
in paying them. So, so really, there's there's nothing supporting women in Georgia like that, like they have in a place like Massachusetts or Minnesota. Um, and what the research has found, which is really interesting, that in states that have these laws on the books, paid leave, family paid leave, women are up more upwardly mobile economically. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it makes a huge difference. In this report, do you all also dig into, when we talk about the quality of life, particularly for women here in Georgia, I'm, I'm particularly interested in the poverty level too. Uh, were you all able to look at what that was in 1971, obviously, and, and now? And what were the, uh, uh, maybe there were some similarities that still exist. What did you, what were you all able to reveal with that as it relates to poverty? Um, the, the poverty, the poverty numbers haven't changed that much. Um, uh, but it, it's still, it's still high, particularly for single mothers. Mm-hmm. Um, and just to look at this a different way, this, this intersects poverty, intersects with, with the um, pay gap between men and women. Mm-hmm. Um, so if women were paid the same as men, um, the poverty rate among all women would drop by half. Mm. There is a section that deals with violence against women, and Professor Oakley, obviously, coming off those horrific spa killings last week, you all looked at and you cited a, a 1964 Time magazine article um, titled Psychiatry, the Wife Beater and His Wife. And then you looked at, you brought it on home to around 2019, 2018, where you talked about that Georgia was currently ranked 25th in the nation for its rate of men killing women. So when we look at that, and that was from 1964, that article that you cited, and then you look at now in the 21st century, how would you assess Georgia's, whether it's laws or, you know, programs and campaigns around violence against women, stopping violence against women? Uh, there's not enough being done, which is pretty obvious if you look at um, the spa massacre. Um, women might have more ability to get away mm-hmm. now um, than they did in the 1970s. And, you know, just pointing out that article um, in, in Time magazine, I mean, it, it, they basically said, well, you know, they sort of sort of said, well, there's a certain type of woman, woman who wants to be with a man that beats them, mm-hmm. which, of course, wouldn't be said in the media today. Um, but there's just not, there's not enough being done. And I, and the pandemic has made it worse, hmm. um, in terms of, of abusive relationships. Absolutely. Just did a segment on that the other day. Um, as we wrap up, I want folks to get it. If they can, we're going to put a link to the report, but you know, you all, all also look at how, in which ways women in Georgia compared to other states, um, what would you say stood out for you? Well, the maternal mortality rate is outrageous. Mm-hmm. And of course, um, it's it disproportionately affects black and brown women. Um, but it does affect all women here in Georgia. Um, I mean, that's just when I when we researched that, I found that shocking. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so there's that. And, you know, I, the other stuff I expected to find some of it. Um, um, the pay gap is really bad down here mm-hmm. between men and women and, and then worse if you're a woman of color uh, it's worse down here than it is up north so you know it, while there's, there's good things that have gone on um, there's still a lot of work to do and, and that work really can't be done without policy change mm. happening at the state level. That was my next question. So then where do we <laughs> begin to change? And you already answered that. A quick, Real quick before we let you go, who should read this report then? I would say everybody. Everybody should read it. Um, it's informative, but, you know, um, if you're interested in women's rights, you should definitely read it. But it would be great 
if if um, the legislators would read it, both the men and the women, and it doesn't matter what party you're in. Um, well, the report is called How Far Yet to Go, the Status of Women, Georgia Women, 1970 and Today. Georgia State University sociology professor Deidre Oakley. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. We'll put a link to the report on our website. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, Rose. Bye. Take care now. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. On this day, peep this, March 24th in the year 2021, it's marked as Women's Equal Pay Day. Now, you just heard a little bit of the conversation I had with Professor Deidre Oakley from Georgia State. And this continues to be an issue since 1971. The earnings gap between women and men is still an issue. Quite frankly, it's anything but equal. I think we can all agree to that. And according to Payscale's gender pay gap report for 2020, overall, the median salary for men is about 19 percent higher than the median wage for women and women of color and specifically black women. It is significantly less. Well, Closer Look producer LaShawn Hudson had a conversation with Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. She's a former Atlanta Press Club Journalist of the Year, and she worked for the local news channel Fox 5 and also wrote for Atlanta Magazine. Now she's living way out in the Rocky Mountains, and Chandra Thomas-Whitfield has been probing the earnings gap between women and men. And she's doing so in an investigative journalism podcast, as we'll hear from Closer Look producer LaShawn Hudson. Welcome to In the Gap, a podcast about how and why Black women aren't getting their green. Yes, I'm talking about money. I'm your host. A little over a year ago, when Sandra Thomas Whitfield began compiling data, conducting interviews, and sifting through research, she had no idea that at one point in the course of her 25 plus year career, she too had been likely underpaid as a black woman journalist. I was in my 20s and I wanted to seek opportunity and that opportunity was to work in television for the first time. And uh, I was already not getting paid very much and I actually had to take a pay cut to move into this new position. Whitfield's personal story somewhat mirrors the stories of some of the guests who she interviews for her new podcast, In the Gap. From start to finish, Whitfield says she takes listeners on a journey, exploring the genesis of the gender pay gap for Black women to present day. Worker, you know, the service worker is is is, is the industry that we have deemed essential, and they have disproportionately been put on the front lines of this disease, and um, and and in many cases are paying with infection rates, which means obviously if you're sick, you can't work or you may not be able to go to work because of your risk. She says she intentionally sought out to interview experts and researchers and everyday black women from various social economic backgrounds and professions to discuss several topics, including pay and workplace discrimination, negotiating, motherhood, and combating negative stereotypes. Throughout 12 episodes, the guests dive deep into uncovering the thick layers of the pay gap while validating the egalitarianism of Black women and their experiences. What I wanted to do with this podcast is to give voice to the experiences that many Black women speak about privately, you know, I say over cocktails, at, at a friend's house, over dinner, and to let Black women know that these are not just isolated incidents. This has been proven and backed by research that this is a systemic issue that has been longstanding in the history of this country. Whitfield says the gender pay gap for Black women exists across every industry, no matter the apex of their careers. According to the Economic Policy Institute, the gender pay gap, also known as the gender wage gap, is the measure of what women are paid relative to men for the same work. It's calculated by dividing women's yearly wages by the annual salaries of men. The ratio number is the percentage of the pay gap. It reveals how much a woman is paid for each dollar paid to a man. Black women in the United States who work full-time year-round are typically paid just 
62 cents for every dollar paid to white non-Hispanic men. And that's according to the most recent data from the National Partnership for Women and Families. And to put that into context, Black men make about 87 cents for every dollar that white men receive, while white women make about 79 cents on the dollar. And speaking of dollars, education doesn't always translate into dollars for Black women. In episode six, Blackonomics, Dr. Julian Mavo, an MIT-trained laborist and the former president of the all-women's HBCU Bennett College, talks about how student loan debt combined with low and unfair pay compensation is preventing Black women from creating wealth. What are the resources Black women have to make it easy for them to be educated? And the answer is, if you look at inherited wealth, very little. So where are Black women going to get the money from to go to college? But basically, there's almost $1.6 trillion worth of student loan debt out there now. Young people in the United States owe more on student loan debt than they own on mortgages. The issue is... Whitfield says the podcast comes at a time when the U.S. is trying to grapple with the pandemic and racial reckoning. I think this podcast comes at an amazing time in American history. Of course, we have Kamala Harris now as the first woman of color serving as vice president of the United States. And we have this renewed interest in the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, sparked largely by the tragic incident involving George Floyd. But ultimately, this podcast focuses on the fact that Black women's livelihoods matter, too. More than 80% of Black women are the breadwinners of their homes. So when you shortchange Black women in pay, you also deprive the Black community, the Black family, their children, all of opportunities to build wealth. So this podcast really provides a space for everyone and anyone who cares about equity and justice to just hear Black women share their stories and their frustrations in the workplace. According to a 2017 report from the Institute for Women's Policy Research, closing the gender pay gap for women could cut the poverty rate in half and inject more than $5 billion into the U.S. economy. For Closer Look, I'm LaShawn Hudson. And by the way, Payscale looked into the top 20 jobs with the largest gender pay gaps. And considering what's called controlled factors, such as women having the same qualifications as men in the same positions, at the top of the list, are you ready for this? Anesthesiologists. Yes. The average medium pay for a man, $355,000 a year. For women, 296000 We'll have a link to more information on our website. This is Closer Look. And Closer Look continues. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. As we continue our Women's History Month special, now just moments ago we heard about the ongoing wage gap between women and men. And now we turn to closing the gap between women and men in another area, engineering. Now, Bessie Navity is a senior software engineering manager at Domatic. It's a logistics company with global headquarters right here in Atlanta. And she's going to share her story and also talk about getting more women into engineering. Bessie, welcome to Closer Look. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you, Rose. It's my pleasure to be here with you today. Great to have you. Let's talk about mentors. Who are your career mentors? So currently, I have a couple of mentors. Mm-hmm. Um, in Domatic, I do have a few. Um, Jenny Farrell, who is um, our um, VP of Human Resources, is uh, one of my prominent mentors. Mm-hmm. And um, she's played a really good role in helping form my career. Um, she kind of sits in the middle of that proverbial board of directors mm-hmm. to help guide me um, when that's needed. Have, have you had a lot of women mentors along the way in your career, Bessie? Um, yes. So as part of um, DEMATIC, we do have the DEMATIC Women's Network, which is uh, uh, a organization mm-hmm. within DEMATIC with a goal to um, help provide um, network connections, empower and inspire women to achieve success on their own terms um, through targeted professional 
on personal development opportunities. Mm-hmm. And it, it's part of its pillars. It's got mentorship, leadership, and development. And um, through the activities of, of the Matic Women's Network, um, we help foster that communication, leadership, and bond between the women in, in the Matic to help foster um, the, the growth of women within mm-hmm. the Matic. That sounds awesome. That sounds great. And someone listening says, my goodness, wouldn't that be great if that could happen in a lot of areas and, and, and sectors? When you think about how you got started and you talked about all these people that have helped you and then having this this mentorship and this career path and this professional development path. But when you think about that, that's not the case for so many women in your field. And I just had a conversation not too long ago with a roundtable of women in engineering who talked about the importance of having other women along the way, but then also being able to create pathways for women in your engineering field. That's not lost on you when you hear me say that. No, no, it's not. It's not. Um, it, you know, studies show that um, um, there is a disparity between um, men and women in the engineering field. And further studies also show that um, women tend to be a little discouraged and drop out of the engineering track um, through over the, over the years. Once they start from um, you know um, high school through through um, graduate school, mm-hmm. so having that mentorship and that opportunity to be a, a voice to help young women um, out there is it's very vital in continuing to bridge that gap between uh, men and women in the engineering field. Do you know of women who have left the field because they were feeling that they felt discouraged or felt like there wasn't enough support for them or whatever other reason? Do you know women who've left the field? Um, in, in the Matic in particular, um, no. Um, uh, but through my studies, I, I did um, study um, my uh, my undergrad was in computer and information systems. And I um, I and my graduate studies were in computer science. And um, I did notice that um, through the course of, of my studies, um, the number of women who um, signed up for the engineering courses tend to drop the higher we went up. Um, and typically they start, the, the classes will start at the beginning of the semester, you have more women, but through the tail end of the, the semester, you have just one or two women um, in the class. Any reason why? Well, what, do you, what do you suspect that was, why that was? I think um, it, it, you know, from my perspective, mm-hmm. uh, and I, I feel it's the, uh, the the lack of encouragement, I would say, and um, being able to have programs that provide that encouragement and and mentorship, um, you know, to help encourage women at an early age, um, as well as to help um, continue that encouragement. While, while, while women go through their, their engineering and professional careers is, is very vital. Um, we do have organizations um, such as, um, you know, Girls Who Code, which is a good organization that mm-hmm. helps um, inspire and, and encourage and provides a forum for, for younger girls through university mm-hmm. to be able to um, you know, continue to have that interest in, in STEM and in, in, in science, technology, engineering, and math. And um, in universities, we, we also have organizations such as the Society of Women Engineers, um, which also helps provide that, that avenue for women in, in, um, in engineering in colleges and also um, young professionals. And it's very vital that um, um, other women engineers mm-hmm. sign up and help out for, um, with these programs to continue to help encourage um, the existing women in that field. That, in, in terms of thematic, um, we do participate in um, in some of the programs, such as the first, um, which was initially first robotics, mm-hmm. and and being able to go out and and talk to high school kids and 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 help them with with um, the uh, with some of the STEM questions and sort of be that guide and encouragement and and role models is very vital in continuing to have more women in the engineering field. You talk to young girls who are interested and they ask you about being a, being in software engineering and you are giving back. You are being that role model for them. I take it. Right, 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 right. 
um, and, and it helps when um, you know young girls and, and other women would be with me being in a leadership role um, as well in the medic. It also helps um, in, in inspiring in, and um, providing um, that 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 um, forum for um, others to come to me. Uh, I, I do I do also mentor. I have a couple of mentees mm-hmm. um, as part of our Dematic Women's Network, um, and I am also the chair of a uh, um, Women in Engineering. Um, 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 committee within mm-hmm. the Dematic Women's Network, which sort of also gives a closer um, guide in in helping um, set up um, mentors and um, and provide that that leadership advice for other women who are um, in engineering in um, in Dematic. Mm-hmm. You know, Bessie, when we talk about diversity and, and equity and inclusion and I'm wondering, wondering if one day we'll get to a different acronym that we'll have to use. But for now, we'll go with that. When we talk about you know diversity and equity and inclusion and what this looks like in a field like yours, engineering, what is your hope, let's say five years from now, uh, that that gap will be the, the disparity there, whether it's with women entering the workforce or even in the pay gap, which we just talked about. What is your hope in five years overall for your field as it relates to more women and particularly more women of color? That, that's a good question, Rose. Um, my hope <clears throat> would be that we have as many women as men um, in the long term, in five years, if we could have uh, a, a third or more of women in engineering, I think that would be a, a really, really good progress in, in bridging that gap. Um, and um, in terms of diversity, you know, our varied experiences and background sort of influence how we form our opinion and also how we approach problems and come up with innovative solutions to problems. To problems. Um, having that diversity in teams where we have, you know, men, women, um, men of color, women of color, it, 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 really, it really helps, um, it, you know, um, it, it helps lead to innovation um, in my, my team in particular, mm-hmm. I have seen an increase in, with the increase in diversity over the years, I have seen an increase in productivity, um, as well as, you know, an increase in, in, in quality and even the speed to market with uh, my team getting better at collaborating all around uh, with engineers, being able to bounce ideas off each other and tackle mm. problems from di- different angles um, while bringing in a new perspective um, you know, that mm-hmm. diversity in thought has led to, as I said, faster problem solving, increased quality, you know, higher team velocities as well. Absolutely. So it's very vital that we we continue to have this dialogue and, and bridge that gap um, in diversity. Diversity is so much more than just a checkbox. Bessie Navity, a senior software engineering manager at Dematic, a logistics company with global headquarters right here in Atlanta, talking about the engineering field and how do we get more women and more women of color involved. Bessie, thank you so much for taking the time and being part of this conversation. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Rose. It was my pleasure. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. You may not recognize a voice, but this native Georgian is believed to be the mother of coining the term rock and roll. I looked at the clock and the 
or maybe the originator of rock and roll. Apologies to the late Little Richard. Trixie Smith, born right here in Atlanta, although it's not exactly clear her year of birth, but it's believed somewhere between 1885 and 1895. She actually died in New York City in 1943 at the age of 48. You're going to learn a lot more about Trixie Smith in just a moment. But there are other black women as we conclude this this edition of Closer Looks Women's History Month special. And it's in the spirit of women like Trixie Smith, Sister Rosetta Tharp, and Big Mama Thornton that led New Orleans and part-time Atlanta-based musician, singer Grace Gibson to give these women their rightful recognition in American music history. And while releasing new music of her own, she joins me now. Grace Gibson, welcome. Now, Grace, you work in music and audio. You got to unmute. <laughs> Welcome. Can you hear me now? We got you. Thank you for taking. Okay, me. great. <laughs> Before we thank you for having. Uh, not a problem. Before we dig into these pioneering women, I want to talk a little bit more about your your journey thus far. What is your rock and roll story? So I was so blessed to just write a piece um, for Refinery Twenty Nine um, about the black roots of rock and roll. And uh, I started an initiative called Rock Noir. I've been working on it for about four years on and off with a bunch of projects that I've quietly been toiling away on. And it all came from the truth. Mm -hmm. The truth, which was that although I have been exposed to a bunch of different types of music, although I went to Columbia University and studied ethnomusicology and film Mm -hmm. and then transferred to Berkeley, I hadn't really found my home musically. And as I searched, I found a natural proclivity towards rock and roll and blues. Mm-hmm. So I instead, when I went to Berkeley, instead of graduating and going to New York or L.A. or one of those big, big cities, I decided to go back to Louisiana, where my family is from. And when I was there, I discovered that, in fact, not only is my family from there, not only did I really want to kind of build from the ground up, for about nine months, I was there just watching the scene and seeing what was what was popping <laughs> and going to the little music venues and just hiding out in my PJs and seeing what the scene was and seeing where I could fit, you know. And so I think a year in, I really made my kind of debut and started performing. But I wanted to see where and why and what was needed because New Orleans has so much. Mm-hmm. And I always said I didn't want to claim New Orleans. I wanted New Orleans to claim me. <laughs> And what I discovered when I was there um, amongst these musicians like Alan Toussaint, he said, you know, your grandpappy had a band called Black Blood and the Chocolate Pickles. And I was like, what? And I was like, mom, granddad wasn't just a dentist who sang sometimes. He had a black psychedelic rock band. And uh, she was like, yeah, he did. And he had this nightclub called Boobies and they went on tour. I was like, what do you mean? You just kind of like never told me this. And I Googled them and I discovered, yes, in fact, they have a cult following to this day. And some of the biggest rappers that you've ever heard mm-hmm. have sampled their music. So that was a confirmation for me that although I wanted to make a name for myself, it was already in my blood. And it was like four generations in to bring this to fruition. You mentioned this current project, Rock Noir, and you've been writing about some amazing black folks when it comes to the history of rock and roll. And, and I want to focus a little bit on, on someone I love because I'm her namesake, um, Sister Rosetta Tharp, the godmother yeah. of rock and roll. I'm going to play a clip in here because what we're about to hear, although it's cited as a gospel song, when we finish mm-hmm. listening to it, we're going to talk about what we actually hear too. Okay. Now, I hear some Chuck Berry, I hear some Carl Perkins, I hear a little Bill Haley, I even hear a little Chet Atkins. And when we talk about Sister Rosetta Tharp and that guitar and just the opening riff, it, it, it for me, it's the, it's the beginning of, of mm-hmm. rock and roll. And you've mm-hmm. been studying this and the history yep. and, and, and women being involved, in, but maybe not getting the recognition they deserve. 100%. Hundred um, percent. For me, it was super important. I think rock and roll is not something that you fake. 
you know, it's something that you are, something inside. And then through really delving in and getting your hands dirty in the history of this complex genre, um, you, 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 all, you authenticate your voice, mm-hmm. you know, and you find, you learn from the greats and you find who you are. So that's what I really started to do. And Trixie Smith was a, was a, I'm not saying I discovered her. I know that people knew about her already, but for me, it was a major discovery to go back and realize, wow, the term rock and roll, they say is cited to 1922 by a black woman named Trixie Smith. My daddy rocks me with one steady roll. So it was a euphemism for sex. Mm -hmm. So it was like the WAP of 1922. Uh Oh, you said it now. (laughs) (laughs) And then that opened doors, you know, for others and a little later sister rosetta tharp comes Mm -hmm. and not only was she a savant virtuoso playing the guitar with so much um authority Mm -hmm. but she they called it the race tracks i mean the race the race um billboards you know so it wasn't called r&b at the time it wasn't Mm -hmm. the r&b charts it was the race charts she was the first person to that I know of, correct me if I'm wrong, to cross over gospel to mainstream. Yeah. And then that's what became rock. And so when you hear that guitar playing, she's laying out the foundation and the blueprint for a Jimi Hendrix, mm-hmm. for even the piano solos that we hear with Little Richard. In fact, when R- Little Richard was 14 years old, she heard him she sing. Saw, mm-hmm. Yeah, she heard him sing and she had him open for her. Mm-hmm. Then little Richard later comes in and changes the world. And he had the opportunity to sign the Beatles. He did not do that. And he had the Beatles open for him. So you just see the baton get passed and passed and passed until it gets past the British invasion, which I'm half British. <laughs> yes. So, you know, those are my people too. But, um, but Sister Rosetta Tharp is truly, I mean, that song, I've seen, have you seen the video where she's doing it in England on mm-hmm. the train? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And yeah, and it, all this, it inspired the British invasion. You know, it's interesting too, Grace, because when you think about when the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame opened, and don't get me started on that, that's all the conversation, uh, opened and their fir- first inductees in 1986, all men, James Brown, Elvis Presley, Ray Charles, Sam Cooke, Little Richard, Chuck Berry, Fats Domino, Jerry Lee Lewis, Buddy Holly, and the Everly Brothers. Not dismissing any of those. But then Sister Rosetta Tharp does not get in inducted until 2018. You know? Yeah. And that's yeah. maybe not a whole other conversation. Too. I want to shift for a moment and talk about you. Because rock now, as we know, has so many subgenres. So do you try and define your style? Do you lock it into straight up rock and roll? Or straight up rock? I, well, I'll just say about rock noir real quick. Mm -hmm. Uh, Rock noir, I came up with the term because I found that there wasn't really one for our people's work, you know? And I put an E at the end, I also speak French. I put an E at the end and made noir feminine to represent the women who opened doors for the men that then got recognition. So Mm -hmm. Sister Rosetta Tharp, Big Mama Thornton, Trixie Smith, the list goes on and on of women who opened doors and created sounds that men then replicated and got accolades for. So rock noir within itself and the definition that I applied to it was a genre community and movement based on the black roots that created, sustained and continue to revolutionize rock and roll. So I would say I'm a rock noir artist (laughs) and, and, and we laid the foundation for every type of rock that exists. I mean, if you read the article, you read the article, Mm -hmm. we go into the seventies, we talk about the black punk revolution. We go into the eighties. We talk about dirty mind and Prince and how he melded funk with punk. Then we go into the nineties and fishbone and the two thousand, the list goes on and on and on. And now we're here at the 2020s. I had to give it to myself. (laughs) We're in the age of self love. So I would say that, I think that I'm an amalgamation of all of those things. Mm-hmm. I believe in studying the greats because they created a blueprint. You don't even have to hear them say it. If mm-hmm. you just listen to the melodies, the sounds, the textures, you'll learn. So I pick up a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of punk, a little bit of, uh, of Southern rock, mm-hmm. a little bit of funk. And it, it is just an amalgamation of all of that in my music. And when you hear River Queen, my debut project, each song has a different type of rock that influences it or comes together to make something new. Speaking of which, because uh, your debut release, Steampunk Blues, let's take a listen. Oh! 
Now, did you play this for your mom? <laughs> what she, she say? <laughs> yes, I did. Well, she heard it from the inception. So uh, it started off with I would go for these walks by mm-hmm. the Mississippi River, and I would talk to folks when um, when I first moved to New Orleans. Now I'd get to know their stories, and I talked to these kids who called themselves the steampunk kids. I learned later that they really gutter punk kids. They didn't really know the correct terminology for themselves, mm-hmm. but it was just interesting. This um, kind of entitlement to live off the grid, to leave home, to Mm -hmm. live on trains, jump on and off of them. And I said, wow, you know, none of them are black. So I thought to myself, wow, what if my brothers and sisters of color, people like me who feel like we have to ask permission to play rock, we have to get approval to to go outside of the boundaries of genres that we've been told are appropriate for us. What if we had that same positive entitlement to go after our wildest dreams without permission? And that's why I wrote that song and the, you know, super Southern, it's very Louisiana to say, it is. <laughs> but touching the time. So I like that dichotomy and that's what I love in music. Um, not being so obvious of I'll never ask for much, just a touch of your time, then I'll take what's mine. So it's a politeness to it, but it's also, um, it's also aggressive in a positive way. Mm-hmm. It's a time to to go for what our ancestors were not allowed to. You know, we can do that. And uh, just the making of the song, it was in that same style. I, I played the guitar riff. I was in my crib. Somebody told me, hey, you got to hurry up, girl, or someone's going to take your spot. I was like, the hell? I never, I'm going to take what's mine. So then I played <laughs> the guitar and then I tuned it down to a bass. I sang, I came up with the vocals and the melodies and the wrote it, um, layered up the vocals, got a drum loop, put some samples in there. And that was the demo. And we released the demo a couple years ago. I'm not even gonna tell you when I recorded this, it's taken me so long to release it. But I released the demo a couple years ago because I wanna take people on the journey of what a track becomes mm-hmm. from an artist like myself who has her hands all over it. Prior to the pandemic, like so many artists, you had dates lined up you were going to perform but then that came to a halt are you ready to hit the road now i am in fact i'm going to nashville at 8 a.m tomorrow morning to perform at the hard rock hotel for um women's month women's history month for a benefit for music cares i'll be actually on the same roster as john mayer i'm very excited teach him teach him some guitar riffs he's not a bad guitar player i'll be i want to be fair before i get an email he's actually a pretty good guitarist i'll be i'll be fair about that oh john mayer is amazing yeah i'll I'll give him his props you know um grace as we wrap up what is the main career goal right now for you what's on that what are those top maybe two or three priorities for you as it relates to your career because you act too I do. I do. So my word of the year, I read this book and and not the whole book, just the first chapter to be on. And it was so good that I didn't have to move on. They said, pick a word for the year and stick to it. You know, court the word, see what it what it does for you. And my word of the year is maximize. It's the first time I've done this. So my goal right now is to maximize all of the gifts that God gave me, songwriting, production, singing, performance artists. Um, But also I'm making I'm, I, I've delved into filmmaking to express all of these things. Because yes, I am an actress, but I want to tell our stories in a certain way with a certain mm-hmm. perspective. So River Queen is going to be a multimedia project. That's all I'll say for now. And okay. we just wrapped Primary Picture. I just directed, um, let's say, three music videos mm-hmm. in four days with narrative. So we just wrapped that. And that's a big goal for me. Getting River Queen out there is a huge goal for me as a thesis statement for my art Mm -hmm. and bringing rock noir to the people and awareness about the black roots of rock and roll. But really, I'm a holistic artist and I'm so blessed. But sometimes you get overwhelmed by all the possibilities. Mm -hmm. So it's just all of these things that I love to do, maximizing my potential and maximizing every single opportunity and seeing where God lays the pieces. But I really feel like the sky's the limit and I'm so blessed to know people like you who support <laughs> what I do because I'm hundred percent independent. I have my own production music based company. And we have them. we feature independent artists. I want to take time to really say hello to all of them because we weren't able to do our summer indie music series last year because of the pandemic. Chelsea Shag usually always kicks it off for us. She just sent me a message saying, loving this interview so much. So we will get it back together. I love Chelsea Shag actually. Shout out. 
There we go. All right. And our friend DJ, our friend DJ said we need to meet. All right. So see, we're all all in this together. Uh, mm-hmm. Grace Gibson, musician, singer. Thank you so much for taking the time. We're going to go out with Steampunk, Blue, Steampunk Blues. Best of luck with everything. Come on back. Now, when you get you, you on the road to being a big star, don't forget about me. Don't, don't. Oh, you're my first. Call I better have road. tickets at every concert for the whole closer look. As a matter of fact, the whole WABE team, we want tickets. Rose and WABE, <laughs> NPR. Atlanta. Okay. <laughs> y'all played my song the first time ever on the radio and I will never forget it. I love y'all. Thank you so much. Best of luck to you, Grace. Thank you. I'll see you very soon. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. If you missed any of today's show, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And we'll have links to all the segments that you heard today and Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. But that's going to change. I'll have a big announcement tomorrow. As well as in our podcast, subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.